Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, this is Art Davey. I'm being admitted on July 5th to the UFC's Hall of Fame to contribute to winning. A lot of people think I'm the creator and co-founder of the UFC. I'd like to give a big shout out today to the Fight League Report and my good friend Sean Lennon. He's Tops. Alright, Sean Lennon, we're back on the most action-packed two hours, Chicagoland, SportsRadio.com, the Fight League Report. And right now my special guest today is Art Davey, of course, he is the co- Creator of the UFC back in 1993 when it was originally uh, created. He's also the author of Is This Legal? And you can check that book out detailing the account of his account of how the UFC began in, in its early days. And we just learned that so July 5th, 2018 in Las Vegas, Art will be inducted in the contributory wing of the UFC Hall of Fame and it's been an honor he's been waiting a long time to receive and he's also the recipient of the Mixed Martial Arts Legends Hall of Fame as well and right now we welcome to the Fight Report Art, how are you doing today and congratulations again on uh, getting this honor. Well, Sean, I'm doing really great now that I've gotten that word and uh, then last Friday we got the, the script from our producer and the writers who have uh, turned my book into uh, uh, potentially a Hollywood movie. Uh, my producer is represented by WME, which owns the UFC, and the writers are represented by UTA. So a package is going out this Monday to 20 different actors, directors, and producers so that a package can be developed and prepared for the studio. That's excellent, man. Congratulations. That's going to be option into a film. I can only imagine, you know, how many people it's going to reach that aren't familiar with the story of how the UFC first started. Well, that's really the key, Sean, is that, you know, there are about 5,000 hardcore MMA fans who know that particular old school's time in the UFC's history. But, uh, you know, with the potential of a film uh, being released by a major studio like Sony, uh, this would reach a, a big audience, and I think it's a good idea in the long run to give the fans some insight into how this all began. Mm-hmm. I always tell people that in 20 years from today, you want to have an answer when your kid turns to you and says, Hey, Dad or Mom, what was there before the UFC? How right. did this begin? Excellent, man. Yeah, we can't wait. That's going to be an amazing uh, opportunity. For you to be a part of, and uh, for everybody that's been a part of the project of 
is this legal? Uh, congratulations to you all, and I hope this is a smashing success. No pun intended. Thank you, Shrink. <laughs> Thank you, for, for sure. And this is not going to be a documentary. This is a uh, full-featured uh, drama, I'm, I'm assuming, at this point, right? Sports drama? Yes, absolutely. And uh, the two writers um, have a tremendous track record on television and the feature films. Um, so we were real excited to begin working with them last November, and they put together a first-class script. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a Hollywood dramatization, a theatrical movie about the, you know, the years that it took to get the UFC up and running. Mm -hmm. And it ends on the first night of um, the UFC, or actually the party after the UFC on November 13, 1993. Excellent, man. And you can't believe it that 25 years has gone by as well. I mean, UFC is celebrating its 25th anniversary, of course. The company right now is... You know, it's doing their own kind of promotion for that, but you have another celebration in terms of you and the original people that started UFC One. You know, that's that's gonna be your a separate celebration for you guys as well. Well, UFC is encompassing the whole 25 years. Yeah, I was uh, I was with the UFC until January of 1998, mm -hmm. but uh, we're real excited about the fact that the UFC has gone on to become. And the sport has gone on to become a 25-year phenomena, and today it extends from you know from Seoul, Korea, to Oslo, Norway, from Buenos Aires to uh, Moscow, mm -hmm. uh, from Hong Kong, from Hong Kong to to, to Bangkok. Uh, it's all over the world today. I'm always amazed when I get uh, friended on Facebook by MMA fans as far away as Afghanistan or oh, wow. Myanmar. Yeah, that's. It's crazy how fast the sport has grown, and you had not anticipated that when you first started this. I mean, this is before, you know, the days of contracts and high-level endorsements. Guys just wanted to get there and uh, get their name out there and fight and display their martial arts to the best of their ability. And not, it was unknown, of course, to go in that cage and, and figure out, you know, what can I do to, to win this fight? Well, you know, it was a different time, and you, you look at the fact that the original idea involved a, an eight-man single elimination tournament, you had guys that had day jobs, and they were willing to put their themselves and their reputations online, online to prove what they had studied, to validate it, and they, were, they had to face three opponents in one night to win the whole thing, and you didn't find out who you were going to fight until the night before, at the fighters' meeting or mm -hmm. at the press conference. So it was a different type of guy that fought in those days. They were fighting for nickels and dimes compared to the dollars that are available today. You know, they were winning fifty or sixty or sixty-five thousand dollars in the first prize. You know, to win the whole thing. Uh, so you look at guys like Don Fry who went ten and one in his first, uh, you know, go around with the UFC. They were an incredible group of guys. And that that is amazing. And you know, having gotten the opportunity to interview a lot of the fighters. From that decade, from that era, you know, it's crazy just to see, you know, all the different stories and what they went through. I mean, there was no big press conference. There was no big weigh-ins, rather. That was all kind of done, like, in a back room, you know? Correct? Well, I, I, wish, I wouldn't say it was done in a back room. had a lot of publicity free press mm -hmm. conference we did. I have to remember that the politicians and the media noticed us right away. Right. And we became big news. Starting you know, virtually UFC two or three, uh, you know I, I got used to uh, 
dealing with reporters from as far away as Rome, Observatory Romano, putting a microphone in my face and asking me why I was promoting these butcher fights, these brutal fights in North America. Um, you know, it was uh, it was an interesting time, but we got an awful lot of publicity and notoriety back in the day. Yeah, and it's it's amazing just how fast they've grown. I mean, when people, when I watched it, and I'm sure a lot of other people watched it, there was a video game called Street Fighter that was very popular. And seeing these combatants perform and from all different backgrounds and, and uh, you know, nationalities and martial arts, you know, one could almost assume this is similar. This is like brought to life. Isn't that correct? Well, I think that was, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of influence at the time which we could play off of, number one. There were an awful lot of martial arts movies, mm -hmm. and the martial arts video games like Mortal Kombat and Street Fighter were, were uh, popular. In fact, that's what the people in pay-per-view told me when I approached them about doing pay-per-view. I knew it didn't belong on broadcast or cable, but I was convinced that an eight-man tournament with the different martial artists would be a hit on pay-per-view. But the people at uh, HBO, Showtime, and ESPN disagreed. They said, look, the martial arts belongs in the movies and in the video games. It's never going to be a big-time sport on pay-per-view. That's for the big boys. If you're any good at the martial arts, they would tell me, you left the martial arts. You went into TV and the movies. Mm -hmm. And they would say things to me like, what about Bruce Lee, Chuck Norris, Steven Seagal, Jean-Claude Van Damme? Anybody that's good in the martial arts gets out of it and goes into TV or the movies. So, you know, there was an awful lot of negative thinking at the time. And all the experts in the martial arts world, they didn't want us to do these fights. They had been teaching that what they were, uh, you know, promoting and selling was invincible and was the right way for self-defense. But none of them were willing to put it up and prove it. I got turned down by all the big names in the beginning. Uh, you know, 90% of the people that I called on said, is this for real? I said, yes. They said, is this a movie? I said, no, it's not a movie. This is a real fight. So, you know, an awful lot of guys said no. That's why, Sean, I dedicated the book I did with Sean Wheelock, Is This Legal?, to the 10 fighters who said yes and participated in the tournament and were there as alternates for UFC 1. And talk about the concept of the octagon. It was a, how you came up with that. You had different ideas prior to that. And looking at today, how do you feel about the different uh, concepts for the cage? You know, we've seen things like square cages, circular cages, and even, uh, you know, the fight being held in a ring. Do you have any preference today of where the fight is being held, or does the octagon still hold up as a favorite? Well, the, the octagon was a brilliant creation, and it was, it was a collaborative effort. Jorge and Gracie and I had written a memo in which we detailed what we wanted it to have, and what we didn't want it to have. Our TV partners were encouraging us to simply rent a boxing ring because A, it was familiar. Fans knew what a boxing ring was. And it was fairly inexpensive. You could rent a boxing ring for, you know, for, for reasonable money. Our boxing ring, because it would, we weren't doing boxing. This was mm -hmm. something different. And Jorge and Gracie's family in Brazil had experience with boxing rings, and they were very negative about if you went to the ground and rolled out under the low, the low ring, the low rope, the fight would get stopped. And it was a technique that a fighter would use to, 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 to delay the bout and to change the advantage position he was in. So right. we had written a memo in which 
we detailed what it needed to be and what it didn't need to be. I wanted a 30-foot enclosure. Boxing rings were 20 to 24 feet. I wanted 30 feet, and that was similar to the Wushu platforms that the Chinese were using in Asia. And I wanted a, a, a foam rubber pad under the canvas because I knew we were going to have grapplers and people would be being dropped on their shoulders and neck. So we wrote this memo and sent it to our TV partners, and they looked at it from the standpoint of what the camera needed to deal with. Because they were going to bring six or seven cameras to that first show, including a Chapman plane. So out of that, uh, that memo and the meetings with our TV partners, they hired two film set designers, Jason Cusson and uh, Greg Harrison. And they came up with four or five different designs that were based on a, a rough cage concept using our memo. And we finally picked the one that you see, and that became the octagon, and we trademarked and patented it. And it's influenced the type of enclosure that mixed martial arts uses all over the planet. Yeah, I mean, it's the trademark uh, cage today, of course, and I have to believe that, you know, Without that cage, the sport would not be as popular as it is. I just think that brings an element to it. Well, you know, Sean, I, I used to say back in the day that what I wanted as an advertising guy, as an advertising salesman, I said, I want to be able to show what we're doing so that someone could turn the sound off and they would know that this is different. It was not, it was not boxing. It wasn't pro wrestling. I wanted an enclosure. And, and a presentation that presented this as something completely new. And the Octagon, as much as any single thing we did, was, was successful in communicating the uniqueness of our, of our event, of the franchise, to the audience. By the way, this Sunday, I will be having dinner here in Las Vegas with Jason Cusson, who now lives in Connecticut, who designed the Octagon. He's coming out here to Vegas. We're having dinner Sunday night at Piero's Restaurant, Sinatra's favorite just east of the sunset of the uh, Las Vegas Strip. Oh, that's great. That'll be a good time for you guys to reminisce. And what is he doing nowadays? He still works in the industry? Oh, yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a, a set designer in TV and movies. Done a lot of the things you see on television and in films. A great guy, and uh, it was brilliant what he came up with years ago. He was the lead dog on, the, on creating the Octagon. And uh, when we looked at his different designs... We finally picked the one that you see today. A couple of UFCs later, we rebuilt it. We rebuilt it so it was more transportable. The first UFC, at the end of the event, Sean, the line producer, Michael Pilat, came up to me, and he was having his people tear it down, and they were going to throw it away. And I said, wow. what are you doing? He said, he said, well, he said, it's a set. We'll build another one for the next show. I said, the next show is in three months. At $28,000. To build that. Wow. He said, yeah, that's true. I said, I got a rental space. And I reached in my pocket and took out the key and said, here's the rental space. Here's the address. And his people packed it up and took it over and stored it. So UFC 2 in March of 1994, we brought the original Octagon out, reset it up again, and we're back in business. Wow. That's a crazy story. Yeah, it's, I guess at that time, you know, they just weren't used to handling something like that. <laughs> you know, it's like a monster to them. Yeah, everybody was used to a boxing ring. Right. You would send that back to the company you rented it from. But, you know, the Octagon, the first time around, Semaphore paid $28,000 to build that puppy. Oh, so, wow. you know, I knew the value of it. We were 50-50 partners, Semaphore and WOW Promotions, 
the company that Lorian and I had founded in Colorado. So I knew the value of it, and I'm thinking, we're not throwing that thing away. I said, I, said, I, I got a rental space. And Pilar looked at me and said, really? I said, yeah, here's the key. Oh, and that's wow. how we saved It's a good story. Yeah, that is, man. That's that. Where is the original one today? You know, I can't answer that question. Uh, you know, when, when Zupa bought the UFC in 2001 from Semaphore Entertainment, uh, I'm not sure where the original ring mat is. First UFC, I heard that, that a lawyer owns it in somewhere in New Jersey, and the original octagon probably went into uh, into into uh, you know was probably torn down and turned into something else because the replacement one that we built a couple of shows in was the one that cost more and it was more packable into a, into a, a box. Okay. And it was yeah, it was it was it was much more transportable. It was now designed so it could be shipped from city to city. And it wasn't uh, meant you know, as a one-time setup. I got you. So it was able to like, fold down or be taken apart uh, more efficiently. Yeah, it, it could literally be folded up. It was, it was really brilliant. It was, it was like a Japanese origami thing where it would fold up into, into a small thing and you could fit it into the kind of box that you would normally ship you know, uh, a set or, or a lot of cameras. Okay. Beautiful. Yeah, that's excellent, man. You guys definitely uh, devised a great... <laughs> A great uh, tool to put and platform to have your product on. Absolutely. Uh, my next question, Art, is why has it taken it so long for you to be in the UFC Hall of Fame? In your opinion, why is it taking so long for you to receive this honor? Well, you know, uh, you know, a lot of things have evolved and changed over time. You must remember that in the early days. We had presented this more as a spectacle, and over time, between UFC 2 and UFC 15, I wrote um, five rule books for the UFC with Jim McCarthy and Jeff Latnick's help, and there was an evolutionary process that moved this in the direction of a sport. That process got really accelerated when Zoop was born in 2001, and then in 2006 they hired Mark Ratner, who had been the executive director of the Nevada State Athletic Commission, they brought him into the company as the Vice President of Government Relations. And Mark did a great job, he belongs in the Hall of Fame, in that he got all 50 states to sanction it. I got the first state, Mississippi, back in uh, 1997, I believe it was, but Mark got everybody else, including the 9 or 10 provinces in Canada. And over time, the UFC, despite the pressure from the media and the politicians, got more accepted as a sport. I think that that process, Sean, had to take place before they could turn around and look back to the past and say, by the way, we would have probably honored you know, some of the people who were involved in the very beginning. Yeah. And uh, you know, I, I think that they honored Bob Marowitz uh, two years ago because they were in the process of selling the UFC to WNA, Super was, and I think they wanted to honor Bob before that sale took place because I think they suspected that Bob wasn't that well known. Not as well known as I was, quite frankly, and they wanted to honor him before that sale took place, which is what they did. Okay, so for your for your standpoint, did you feel like this came too late, or are you just embracing it right now? No, I think it came actually in a, in some respects in, the, in a, maybe the best appropriate time. Twenty five year anniversary, right. I think it's a great time to bring me into the Hall of Fame. I'm really excited about that for that reason. And I always tell the story, and I've said it in interviews, 
I give a lot of credit to Zupa coming on board in 2001. They, they, they took a lot of chances. They spent a lot of money. They made a lot of good decisions. And they brought it into the mainstream. If they hadn't been successful at resuscitating the UFC, that was under a lot of fire by 19, by 2000 and 2001, by, by, by bringing the UFC back to life, I'm having this conversation with you today. And I'm being inducted into the Hall of Fame on July 5th because of what they did. If the, if the UFC had died back at the beginning of the millennium, I wouldn't be talking to you about the UFC today. There wouldn't right. be anything to talk about. Yeah, that's interesting that you make that point. But talk about the WMEIMG sale. Did it affect like a lot of people that you knew that worked for UFC at the time? Because there was a lot of layoffs and a lot of people that were there for a great tenures that were let go. What was your opinion about that? Well, you know, I give a lot of credit to Zupa for the changes and improvements they made. But in a way, it was it was a time and brilliant, time and appropriately brilliant for to bring in a WME. They're a, a seven billion dollar company. They're partnered up with so many powerful entities. They're the biggest agency in the business for talent. Um, and to bring them on board is to move the UFC to the next level. And quite frankly, the UFC is at the, being at the top of the food chain is the only truly international brand. Everybody in a sense is a local promoter of MMA. Even you know, one FC in China is pretty much a Chinese phenomena. You know, you don't see them in South America or in, or in Europe or in North America. Um, so you're looking at the UFC being the only international MMA brand, really. And uh, uh, I think WME can take it now maybe to the next level. And the next level will make it even bigger. When you think about it, other than soccer, which the rest of the world calls football, the, the sport that really stands the best chance of becoming truly huge and international is mixed martial arts. And, you know, that's something I knew from the very beginning because in doing my homework in preparing this idea for presentation and becoming the pitch man for the UFC, it was very early. I had read about and found out that for over a thousand years, the number one sport in the Greek Olympics was pancreation, which was a version of MMA. And it was punching, throws and chokes. The only restrictions were no biting and no eye gouging. And for 1,041 years, until a Roman emperor abandoned, it was the biggest sport on the planet. I think that the future of the UFC and the sport is to go in that direction. I think that even politicians and the media and the establishment are worried around the world, thinking if we had, if this sport was even bigger, and maybe there was the kind of violence, fan violence and excitement that is created by soccer, could the world stand it? Will it become a very nationalistic thing? The fighters of Brazil fighting the fighters of of, of, of Russia, or the fighters from Jordan fighting the fighters from you know from Argentina. I think the potential for the UFC in the sport is huge. I don't think we've seen how big it's going to grow. Long after I'm done, the UFC in the sport will probably be the number one sporting event on the planet. It has that potential. Wow, yeah, that's amazing to think about. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, talking about, you know, going back to when you helped John McCarthy with the unified rules, or you were a part of that, you know, hope-making process of the rules nationwide, now that we see state-by-state state, the rules have changed, 
What do you think about that? The rules uh, change state by state now, and uh, there's been uh, actually the change overall in the nation. The national rules have changed recently. Well, you know, you know, part of the problem that I see, and I'm sure a lot of fans would uh, see it as well or better than I do, is that the evolution of the sport now involves sanctioning in 50 states, uh, 10 provinces in Canada. And, you know, if, if you learned anything about politicians and bureaucrats, is that they love, they love to have control. So uh, this was always, in my humble opinion, one of the problems that boxing had with too many sanctioning bodies and, uh, you know, differences in, in how rules or gloves were applied. So I, I, I'm not happy to see that process, you know, that fractionalization of the rules taking place. Uh, I was excited when in 2001 the Unified Rules of MMA were adopted and it became the basis for what happened in the state of New Jersey and later in Nevada. I know that today McCarthy and Sean Wheelock are members of the ABC, the Association of Boxing Commissions, and they have uh, had a big effect on trying to coordinate and make consistent the rules on a national level. But I'm always surprised and a little amazed when I find out that the rules for amateur MMA are different than me is modifying the rules different than other states. Uh, the grand presentation in they all. And that, that is not a help, quite frankly. And where it will end up, I'm sure. But quite frankly, the thing that could have achieved it is the fan. I never lose sight of the fact that the thing that created the UFC was the fans. They picked it up at the very beginning, and they stick it in the parties when the public. Can you hear me? I can't hear you. Art, are you there? And the U.S. grow in a break. Are you there? You left off. Sure. Um, we were we were just talking about uh, we were talking about the fans. Ultimately, the fans by hear, having their voices heard uh, can really influence where this is all going. Because ultimately, when you build a product, you're building it for people to buy it, and the fans, in a sense, with with their dollars and cents vote, with their checkbooks, with their wallet, with their pocketbook, they vote on what they like. So, you know, the fans can be a, a factor in how the UFC and the sport evolves. I, I, I've always felt that as an ad man, I never lost sight of the fact that that's who I was really working for, was the fans. And, you know, talk about what the fans want. I think Dana White, he's managed to, you know, take a lot of different concepts make them happen in the UFC. But one thing that we saw back in 2012, uh, actually 2010, he was asked, would women ever compete in the UFC? And we saw many, many MMA fighters like Cyborg, Gina Carano, uh, women fighters in strike force. And he said that would never happen. And a few short years later, it did. So what are your thoughts about women in uh, mixed martial arts? Do you feel like that's something, man, you missed the boat on or the sport wasn't ready for yet? Well, the sport wasn't ready for it when I was first asked about it back around 1996. But uh, I think that when Zena finally greenlit it, I think it was appropriate. And I think when you see the quality of some of those fighters that came forward, the audience was ready for it. Definitely. And, you know, seeing how we've had Ronda Rousey make a transition to Hollywood and other forms of entertainment, it just shows that, you know, mixed martial arts 
his breeding stars, you know, guys like Conor McGregor. Obviously, he's been in negative light as of late. But, you know, there's people getting movie roles and uh, getting great opportunities outside of the world of fighting as well. I was always pleased that back in the day, Oleg Tatarov, the winner of UFC 6, wound up with a nice little career for himself in both American and Russian movies. And later, Randy the Natural Couture made the transition from fighting to uh, the world of films. He's been in, as you know, a number of the expendable movies with Stallone. Of course, anything that Randy does, he's usually a champ at. Oh, yeah, definitely, man. I, I think I respect everything that he does. And uh, he's always been fighting for the fighters' rights. Which brings my next question up, is what do you think about, you know, fighters today complaining that they're not getting paid enough, they're not getting taken care of, either medically or personally and financially, they're, they're, they're coming away with hardly anything that, with all this time invested in the sport. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? And now that, that there's a lot of uh, need for the fighters to maybe possibly organize a union. Well, you know, the difficulty in organizing a union among people who make their living as individuals, uh, taxi cab drivers are a good example, uh, is usually very difficult to, to, to create a union around that uh, because you wind up having two or three different classes of people that could be in the union. The very big stars, quite frankly, don't need the union, and you can't apply what applies what, what would be applicable to the stars to the rank and file. Um, so I think there are some basic difficulties in trying to establish a union. On the other hand, uh, this is an area that, uh, as, as the sport and the UFC grows, will continue to be examined by both the fans, the fighters, and, and, and the, the promoters. Um, you know, the, 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 there's always been uh, a line of friction and tension between actors and the studios in Hollywood. You know, Betty Davis could argue, I'm not being paid enough, I'm not doing that movie. And, 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 and threatened to rebel at Warner Brothers. Olivia de Havilland did the same thing. Uh, Burt Lanky has to form his own production company. So I think that it's, it's inevitable that you're going to see some fighters uh, have legitimate issues or, or legitimate claims that they can make to, uh, in effect, say that the promoters are not doing enough for me or for us. And I think this, on a case-by-case -case basis, has to be considered and dealt with. Um, but there, there's a lot of history in a lot of different industries where talent... Uh, you know, has to wrestle with management and ownership in terms of how the pie is divided. Mm -hmm. You personally, uh, did you have to do any of this when you were in charge oh, of this? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I lost fighters to other promoters early on. I lost uh, Marco Lewis and Oleg Takarov and Timo Leopoldo to promoters in Japan. Um, you know, that, you know, if somebody could pay the fighter more than I could at the time, you know, it, you know, look, look it, it's capitalism. It's, it's an open market. It's a free market. And, you know, the fighter is right to negotiate for the best deal he or she can get. It's their sweat, blood, and tears that they're putting out there, their reputation. So if I were a fighter, I'd be the first one to stand up and say, look, I want more. I want this. I want to be treated that way. That's natural. Everywhere, that's human nature. And it's also somewhat inevitable that the promoter is going to argue, well, you know, based upon what we think we can do as far as sales, tickets, etc. You know, this is what we can afford to pay. So it's always going to be a wrestling match. That's not going away. That'll only continue. Well, Art, I want to thank you again for your time to be on the fight for today. And uh, congratulations on getting the honor of 2018 inductee induction ceremony for the UFC. Uh, it's, it's an honor to have you on this show. And is there anyone you'd like to thank? 
Well, you know, I'd like to give uh, thanks to my good friend and partner, maybe my number one fan, Sean Wheelock. He's with uh, 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 he's with um, uh, M1 today. Uh, he's heading over to China. They're doing a show, I believe, just outside of Shanghai. So I'd like to give a shout out to my good friend Sean Wheelock, my partner in crime. What is this legal? And I, of course, always want to give my best regards to some of the great people over at the UFC, Forrest Griffin, Ant Evans. Uh, there's a lot of good people working over there doing the, doing a great job. Excellent. I'm sure you're looking forward to be welcomed uh, with open arms uh, come July 5th. And uh, are you going to be at the event as well? Well, yeah, I've got to be there. I've got to accept it. I'm, I've, I've already I've been working on my speech. I just about have it done. I've been polishing it. But I'll be there. Uh, Sean will introduce me. I'll be there to accept the award. And I've got people coming in from all over the country. In fact, I've got people coming in from foreign countries to be there at the Pearl Theater, July 5th at the Palms Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada. Awesome. But are you going to be at the UFC 226 event, is what I was referring to. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I didn't understand. Yes, I will be there. I have uh, tickets from the UFC. Uh, they, they've granted me several tickets. We'll be right there uh, by the Octagon. I'll be there for the big event. I'll be there for the tough finale on Friday. Okay. Uh, the, the event on, on Thursday night at the, at the Pearl Theater. And I believe, of course, I'll be there at the press conference on the 4th. So it's part of International Fight Week, as you know, mm -hmm. and this is going to be the biggest one of all. Excellent. And who do you got, DC or Stipe Miocic? You know, I, I, that to me is a tough one. That's kind of a coin toss. Uh, I like both fighters, by the way. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that's one that I'm going to be watching very carefully with fighting my nails and enjoying. That's going to be a great fight. Excellent. Well, hey, I want to thank you again for being on this show. And congratulations on the honor, and enjoy an incredible weekend. Thank you so much, Sean. It's always a pleasure to be with you. You have my best regards. Take care. Keep doing the great job you're doing, brother. I appreciate it. Take care. Sean Lennon with Lightly Report. As we head to the halfway point of the year, many questions have yet to be answered in MMA. Will Conor McGregor return to fight Habib Nurmagomedov before the end of the year? Who will be next in line for both Stipe and Dice after their super fight at UFC 226? Is there going to be an actual women's featherweight division? Kobe Covington visit the White House for his photo op with President Trump? And who will emerge in the semifinals for the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix? For all updates on these matters, listen live Tuesday at 12 p.m. only on ChicagolandSportsRadio.com.